All right, so tonight we're going to be in Matthew chapter 4. And as we've been going forward in Matthew, we are going verse by verse, yet as has been the custom here on Saturdays, we try to be a little more topical, like a little more focused on a particular topic that just comes up in the text. And so tonight we get a little bit of a hybrid because we're going to look at these different elements of chapter 4 in their own context historically with a couple of things that are important to note and then we're going to really hone in on one element of this chapter. And they are connected because it's Jesus connecting them, but they are a little different. So let's, let's go verse by verse into this text tonight. So Matthew chapter 4, Jesus has been baptized. The Father has confirmed that he is the Son. John the Baptist, the greatest prophet of all time, has confirmed that Jesus is the Son of God. Chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him and said, he said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become bread. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him uh, into the holy city uh, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, and now the devil's quoting Old Testament scripture out of context. He shall give his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. And then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. In Luke's gospel, we're also told the bonus thought that the devil departed until an opportune time, which is a sobering element to add to this part of the story, because that's how the devil works. You get these different titles of the devil in these passages. He's the, he's the tempter, he's the devil, he's Satan. And he's tempting. Now, the story of the temptation of Jesus is very unique. Because for one, it says the Spirit led him to go be tempted. And we know that the Father doesn't lead us into temptation. We're actually, in the Lord's Prayer, lead us not into temptation. We're to be made aware of, to recognize temptation. And really, we know that every temptation is a test. Just like Adam and Eve, our forefathers in the faith, it's a chance to show obedience and obey the Lord or to disobey and go after things other than the Lord. The tree of life is life, and him is life, and it's the light of men, the Lord Jesus Christ. But the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you know, it's always a bummer when you get old enough to know good and evil, and it's never a good feeling. And so we all know what that's like one way or another, the the loss of innocence. So from the time of Adam and Eve and the original sin, and sin entered the world, and the curse of sin came upon all things, thus death entered the world through one man, the entire universe, trillions of galaxies, the law of entropy working, everything is, though the universe is expanding, it's dying at the same time. And though beautiful newborn babies are born every day by the thousands, they have a death sentence in them and just add 80 years and they will begin to look like they're ready for eternity. And certainly in their 90s, your 90s, you will. That's just the way it works and time works equally for everybody, the consequence of sin and death upon the human race. When Adam and Eve fell in the garden in their sin, we know the three areas of temptation that sin existed. The lust of the eyes, 
what you see and you lust for. We all know that one. Uh, the lust of the flesh, what your flesh desires and craves. We all know that one. And the pride of life. And we all know that one too. So those are the three areas of temptation that Adam and Eve fell in with the sin in the garden. And then here Jesus comes along and we see that he's tempted in those same three areas. Now, though it's not in this context, in 1 John we're told through faith in Jesus and by the power of the Holy Spirit that we are to stand against these things and these three things are affirmed again, that these things are not of the Father, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. But we also know there's an unholy trinity that works in time, space, and matter where the devil is the tempter and the world is temptation and we have this treasure in earth and vessels and we are tempted. Just because we have faith in Jesus and born again by faith and empowered by the Holy Spirit doesn't mean that we aren't tempted. In fact, I always used to tell people, still do if they ask me, if you doubt the existence of the devil, just try living for the Lord. Because as soon as you get serious with Jesus, the devil shows up on your front door one way or another to try and discourage you from, from doing so. This temptation was led by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had come upon Jesus at his baptism and the mystery of all that. But moving on from that, he was led to be tempted. The reason Jesus was led to be tempted is he had to give victory for us where our head of the race, the first Adam, fell in sin. Where Adam and Eve fell where they failed and fell in sin, thus sin entered the world, and we're all, he who sins is a slave to sin, and the wages of sin is death. And those who are bound in sin are taken captive by the devil to do his will. Jesus began his ministry by bringing victory as the second Adam. Now, in the genealogy of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, we know that it starts with Mary and goes all the way back to Adam. And we also know in the teachings and the theology and the doctrine of the New Testament that Jesus is the second Adam. And so what was lost in the first Adam, Jesus is called and referred to as the second Adam. So what was lost here, where in Adam all sin and die, when we come to Christ, all are made alive through faith in him. His victory is our victory, and his victory is really two bookends. Because we often think of the cross and the empty tomb as the victory of Jesus for us, and rightfully so. He died for our sins and rose from the grave for our hope and justification. But really the victory began where he defeated the devil in this battle of temptations as the second Adam. So this really, this story isn't so much like, hey, body of Christ, go have victory. Like, <laughs> I'll tell you, don't go to the desert for 40 days to pick a, a fight with the devil. All right? I mean, I said, I've learned a long time ago, I don't need to pick a fight with the devil. He'll pick it with me. You just do God's will and stay in God's will, and that's where you're invincible. But whenever I kind of got a little full of myself and confident in myself, man, it was always trouble. And I'm not afraid to be engaged in spiritual battles, but I've learned that if I, what they say in sports? The best defense is a great offense. So if I'm just focused on doing what God wants me to do, then like David, I can say the battle is the Lord's. But this was a special battle between Jesus who cast out Satan from heaven and the one he cast out. This is a very, this is a heavenly, eternal battle. This one, this, this, this whole story precedes itself in eternity and the glory of another dimension that, well, through faith in Jesus, we'll see, but not like Satan and his, as Lucifer, that special angel of glory. And Jesus came and made it straight. 
This is Jesus' first great victory over the devil. And when Satan entered Judas' heart to betray Jesus and see Jesus crucified, that's where we really see how Satan doesn't know everything. Because in doing that, Satan actually sealed his final defeat. And what we really see when Jesus says here to Satan in the wilderness, away with you, at the lake of fire, Jesus says in the book of Revelation, he'll cast the devil and his fallen angels into the lake of fire once and for all. So he'll have the final away coming, and it's coming on our behalf and all the, the redeemed as well. But he was tempted in these three areas. They're very real temptations. I can only imagine how hungry Jesus was in his human nature, that deity and humanity together. The first temptation began with his weakest point, right? He was hungry, 40 days fasting. It's not a coincidence. The first temptation is matched up to expose that weakness. And yet, Jesus, we're told in Hebrews, had to be tested in all things like us so he could be victorious where we aren't. And he can ever live and intercede for us when we are tempted for our strength for victory and for our comfort in defeat because he knows exactly what it's like to be human in that way. But he's got perfect victory. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us on the cross that we might become the righteousness of God, not by good works, but by positional righteousness through faith in Jesus being reckoned to us. For when the Father sees us in faith in Jesus, he sees the perfection of his Son. That's positional righteousness. And this is part of that purpose and plan right here. Because I always say this about Jesus. He's the perfect toddler, the perfect fifth grader, the perfect junior high, perfect high school, perfect citizen, you never bring a, a reproach against Jesus. Even when he's crucified, it was false accusations, but essentially it settled in on this, that he claimed to be God. And he is. He is God. So Jesus, that's the victory of Jesus. Now, verse we read on here in verse 12. So after the, the devil was gone and the angels ministered to Jesus, it says, Now Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been put in prison... So he that is Jesus departed to Galilee, leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that's the former Jewish tribes. That was the territory they received in the book of Judges, the northern region to pretty much the left of the Sea of Galilee, going toward Lebanon and the Mediterranean Sea, Zebulun and Naphtali. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region in shadow of death, light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. A couple important things here contextually. If you harmonize the Gospels and the chronology of the ministry of Jesus, after the baptism of John, if you're reading the Gospel of John, written by the Apostle of John, not John the Baptist, we read about how Andrew, Peter's brother, one of the, the 12 apostles, was a disciple of John the Baptist. And then, then Andrew, when Jesus came on the scene, and after John the Baptist said that Jesus is the Son of God and the Lamb of God, Andrew tells his brother Simon, and he, Simon comes to Jesus, and Jesus says, I'm going to change your name to Peter, which means like a stone. That's all in John chapter 1. Well, after that, John chapter 1, 2, 3, and all of 4 all happen between what we just read, verse 11 and verse 12. 
Uh, it's, a, it's months. So when Jesus went in the temple the first time and cleansed the temple, the woman at the well, right? That all happens in between these two verses, the, the, the temptation text we read and this text we just read right here, the beginning of his ministry based out of Capernaum in the region of Zebedee and Naphtali by the Sea of Galilee. In fact, Luke also has chronological details that precede this as well. That famous story of Jesus when he went to his hometown of Nazareth, went in the synagogue, read Isaiah, and said, this day, this scripture is fulfilled in your presence. That also is between verses 11 and 12 right here in Matthew 4. So Jesus had been rejected by his community there in Nazareth before he came here. So as Jesus begins his earthly ministry to present himself to the nation of Israel as their promised Messiah, the Christ of the Old Testament, really the Savior of the world, where we read here that he'd heard John the Baptist was now imprisoned by Herod the Tetrarch, one of the descendants of Herod the Great, and that it says, and leaving Nazareth, that's all it says in Matthew's account, but he left Nazareth because they're about to push him off the cliff, remember, and he walked right through them, and that was it. And he said, you know, because of their unbelief, he didn't do many miracles there, and because his fame had already began to spread because he had already gone to Jerusalem and presented himself in what we read about in John chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4. Now, he had the encounter. We have Jesus connected with the, the tempter, the devil himself, in those first 11 verses. Here he's connected with John the Baptist, now in prison. He's connected with the city that rejected him, that he grew up in. The perfect kid, the perfect high schooler, the perfect man, the perfect citizen. That city rejected him. That city rejected him, and he's identified there. But he's also identified with where he's going to be based out of Capernaum, the town of Capernaum there on the Sea of Galilee, the region, Galilee, and that region of Zebulun and Naphtali, which when Isaiah prophesied that, that's when the Assyrians had conquered the northern tribes, the ten northern tribes. Now, we studied all this in Chronicles, but the twelve tribes of Israel were unified until 931 B.C., when Solomon died, and then they were divided, and the ten tribes were in the north, and the two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, in the south. And they often were at civil war with each other because the ten tribes in the north worshipped idols and in many, most cases, rejected the worship of God. No good kings, remember? All bad kings in the north. Some good kings in the south. And I find it very interesting that, because we're familiar with the Assyrian kings, because we just finished all this about these guys that came down, Sennacherib and them, Seven, so right about the time of Hezekiah in the south of Judah, and these northern kings are going down in, in the north for their sins and being overrun by the Assyrians, that's when God says in this place of great darkness, because it would have been darkness. Remember, they were taken away captives and displaced from their homelands. It, it would have been a very dark time. And this prophecy was spoken by Isaiah, along with many other wonderful ones pertaining to Christ, and it looked ahead to the fact not so much even the people that were going away into captivity, but like 700 years later, when God himself would come to that region of all places on planet Earth to show himself as God. All those miracles that Jesus did to show that he is God of the universe, he did in this region. Who could have known when Isaiah said that, like 725 B.C., when their whole world's caving in, losing their asset wealth, losing their vineyards, and being taken into captivity, losing their freedom, that God was actually speaking of a great light that would come, not to rescue them 
of that generation, but that God himself would come 700 years later for all of humanity, of which we are the beneficiaries tonight in Jesus' name. It's amazing to think that. Also his message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We saw this last week. John the Baptist's message was one of repentance. And all good things with the Lord begin with repentance because we're we're born, we are born in rebellion to God, contrary to God. There's none that seeks after the Lord, no, not one. So it's through repentance and faith in Jesus that we turn toward God, we agree with God, and we begin to go in the right direction with God. So even as John the Baptist's message was repent for the Messiah's coming, Jesus' message was repent for the Messiah is here. In fact, he said, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. He said that later on. And so this is the base of his ministry. So he's fought the devil. He's established his base of ministry of operation. And now we read on in verse 18. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew's brother, casting a net into the sea for their fishermen. Then he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease among the people. Then his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all sick people who were afflicted with various diseases and torments, and those who were demon-possessed, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Great multitudes followed him from Galilee and from Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. So in a time and culture so different than one we could relate to, that circle of influence is you know, a radius of 100 miles or more, where things are happening that have never happened in human history before. Nothing ever in human history. And the uniqueness of it is what we're going to be studying as we go through the Gospel of Matthew. If you think about, you know, the Eastern religions, as I mentioned, right about the time, the time of the fall of Jerusalem, that's when Confucius and Buddha lived in the east during the captivity, the Babylonian captivity. They both lived about the same time in the east. The Greek Stoic philosophers that Paul the Apostle encountered, the, the, the real leaders of those guys were about, four, about the time Nehemiah was rebuilding the wall. So they'd been around for centuries. So the Stoic philosophies and, the, and those Greek philosophies were firmly entrenched. There were very powerful worldviews pretty much in every known, well, in every known culture at the time. Everyone has some kind of a worldview about the meaning of life and time and eternity, and it was no exception in their time. And it's just so glorious to think that God set aside the Jews to be his people in a covenant. He gave them his law to guide them and show all of us in all future generations right and wrong with the Lord. And then he promised to send his son to redeem us because we can't keep his law. And so to be saved through his son and then to be empowered by his spirit to bring glory to our Father in heaven. And this is the beginning of it, these last couple of verses. This multitude, Gentiles and Jews coming together and when people are desperate. You know, you learn this in ministry. You learn this in life. People are desperate. I've shared this story in the past, but 
My, my uncle, who I never knew, Bud Jr., my mom's older brother that she just loved and worshiped and adored, he died of cancer uh, in his late 20s, early 30s. And my grandfather, Bud Sr., who I knew very well, he was Catholic, devout Catholic, and as was the whole family. And he was desperate for his son. And my, uh, my dad told me this re- you know, about five years ago when he first went into... Um, assisted living when he was still very sharp and he told me like yeah you know old bud he he went to italy he literally went to the vatican and got like the healing holy water from the holy sites and brought it back to to heal bud jr now my dad was raised liberal protestant so it was a very distinguishing thing for him you know he married a, a very devout catholic wife the bell of the ball as he would say and and you know as I talked with my dad about this about five, six years ago down in La Costa at the Sunrise facility there, he goes, you know, Joe, I learned something that people are desperate. And Bud was desperate. He loved his son. And I was like, I can't, I, you know, mom never told me that story. No, he, he said he flew to Italy and, and, and got that. And of course, it didn't work because Bud Jr. had his leg amputated to try and stop the cancer. And then Bud Jr. died of cancer before I was ever born. And then Susan, my mom's older sister, also died of cancer. In her early 30s, well, she was dying of cancer in her early 30s, but she actually died in a fire when she was terminal before she could die from cancer. These are desperate people here. Wouldn't you agree? These are desperate people. One thing you learn when you make yourself available to be in ministry, you know, just volunteer or vocational, you realize that the world is filled with desperate people. All around us, there's desperate people. Desperate people that don't want to hear about the Lord. Desperate people that do. Desperate people that will grab on anything if they think it's going to solve their short-term problem or their sorrow in time, space, and matter. These are desperate people. What I've learned, though, in 35 years of ministry is so often desperate people are only desperate for the temporal. They don't understand there's a, a greater thing of the eternal. Which kind of brings us to, it does bring us to our application tonight. Because the fascinating thing to me in this chapter, once you get past the temptation of Jesus and the establishment of his ministry, is these four men who are the disciples, two different sets of brothers, in the fishing business together from two different families, that in a chapter where there's multitudes of people, innumerable multitudes being healed of all their needs and all their needs being met, with no names in the multitude, yet contrast to that multitude, are four men that we know are going to change the world. Peter and Andrew, John and James. It goes back to what we always say, many are called, but few are chosen. And Jesus taught those parables where he invites all the people to the wedding feast and no one wants to come. And whoever is willing, let them come. It is a narrow gate. And the narrow gate is the discipleship of Jesus Christ. The real experience, of the real goal, the real objective, the highest ideal of the human experience, without a doubt, is to be saved through faith in Jesus Christ, to become his disciple and fulfill our divine destiny of purpose in obedience to him with the power of the Holy Spirit and the promises of God's word enabling us and moving us forward till the day of the Lord, forward, onward, and upward, always with the Lord. And it begins, our whole story of Jesus reaching fallen humanity and, and bring, drawing men and women to himself and transforming their lives. And, and we're going to have the Sermon on the Mount beginning next week, these incredible truths. They, their strength, 
belongs to disciples. Disciples are people who have heard the good news of Jesus and responded in personal faith. As many as believed, he gave them the right to become the children of God. Not born of flesh, not born of blood, or the will of man, but born of God. John chapter 1. To be born by the Spirit through faith in Jesus. And obviously in the earthly ministry of Jesus, there's a transition where he's drawing and working a certain way with the apostles and the disciples and the Jews and people as a whole. And then on the day of Pentecost, when he sends the Holy Spirit and works through these men, Peter, John, James, and Andrew, and the other apostles, we know that the book of Acts, of course, is how, and the teaching of the New Testament canon of Scripture teaches to us how when we receive Christ, that we're born anew, and we pass from death to life, and we become disciples. But so many people say a prayer to respond to Christ but so few actually go forward as disciples of Christ. In fact, many people think it's something different. They think of it almost like a, like a video game. You accomplish this, you ask Jesus, Jesus into your heart, but you know, ooh, you know, you gotta earn to be baptized. That's the next big thing you do. Like you gotta pass this level of the video game to be baptized, and then you can become a disciple and you'll be like those people that go to church and you see them serving at the church. And people think like that. But in Christ, it's all one and the same. He didn't call people to be churchgoers or to make limited confessions of faith publicly. He called them to be disciples, to identify with him by surrendering to him. And we're going to see this throughout the Gospel of Matthew, as you see it in all four Gospels. And it begins with these four. Called to be disciples. In fact, I've mentioned my Bible has these titles, and I'm like, hmm. Okay, what am I going to call this message? Well, I reinvent the wheel. My Bible says four fishermen called his disciples. It's all right there. This is the call to be disciples. Now, last week we talked about the unique divine destiny of each person. But this is a little different, so don't cross them up. This is different. Called to be disciples. So as we come back to verse 16, excuse me, 18, and we think about these four men called to be disciples, a couple simple things to reflect on tonight before we move on to communion. Jesus said, follow me. This is so liberating for all of us to know that when God calls us to himself, he calls us to follow him. And so much, so many people, even in the name of Jesus and Christianity, they often think of being a disciple of Jesus Christ as following rules. Or regulations. There's something about human nature that likes rules and structure and regulations. In fact, most people like to be told what to do. Nine out of ten people go to work and do a job where someone tells them what to do. You don't have to critically think. Like, you just kind of go with the flow. The cults, false, te- false teaching groups of Christianity, they thrive with people who want to be told what to do and do a job and check the boxes and think that that's what it is to know God in the human experience, and to go to heaven through their good works. And of course, the world has no shortage of world religions and philosophies that would follow the same thing. When people have been baptized into denominations, and by the way, if you don't know, there's like 20,000 denominations on planet Earth. Tens of thousands, just so you know. 
sub-denominations, fragmented denominations. I used to think there was hundreds. When I began to study world missions, I learned there's actually tens of thousands of them. Because people find things to divide over, and the Lord has to keep doing a fresh work because people go toward their flesh and their pride, and he keeps doing a fresh work, and that's what church history is. But as a pastor, I've obviously, you know, in 35 years, you've got to figure I've baptized quite a few people, and I have. And when I baptize people, I baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, like it says in Matthew chapter 28, what Jesus said to do. But I'm really identifying them in the person of Jesus Christ. And when people go underwater, they're identifying with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection on their behalf and the life they now have in him. For if the Son sets you free, you're free indeed. But I have baptized a lot of people where they say, like, well, I was baptized into this denomination. Does it count? And I say, well, if in your heart you're committed, you know, you're committed to Jesus, yeah. But see, in Western world history... People want to identify with the denomination. Of course, the wars of the medieval times, plus since that time, you know, like, for example, when the Prussian queen, like Catherine, who's a, a duchess at the time, goes to Russia and ends up marrying the grandson of Peter the Great, she's got to convert from Catholicism to Russian Orthodoxy. And she's no longer under the Pope, which is who she was under as a Prussian duchess, now, now she's under the, the Metropolitan of Moscow. He's like the Pope of the Russian Orthodox Church. And so one of the things that was so controversial in medieval times was when they did these marriages to strengthen monarchies and, you know, build your house like a game of Monopoly, is the tricky part was, was getting people, the women, to let go of their identified religion of their state religion to identify with this state religion, and they all call themselves Christians. So Catherine the Great before she was Catherine the Great, had to be baptized a Russian Orthodox, which is a huge deal back then. See what I mean about religion? Jesus said, follow me. Even recently, I baptized someone. They said, well, they were baptized as an infant. And I said, well, you know, your parents met well. So you didn't really have the choice. You didn't understand that you're identifying with Christ. So let's just go forward right now here. I don't make it a splitting issue. I just want to point everybody to Jesus because we can identify with Calvary Chapel movement as being a Calvary Chapel affiliate. We can identify with the Southern Baptists, which would be wonderful. We can identify with all kinds of denominations that we would agree with and we can hang out with. But I don't need to be baptized in the name of those denominations. My identity is Jesus on the day of the Lord. Well, God forbid your identity is Pastor Chuck and the Calvary Chapel distinctives on the day of the Lord or anything else like that. Our identity is Jesus. Jesus didn't say, hey, Peter, follow me, and I'll teach you uh, 20 distinctives about this denomination, and you can be baptized in that denomination. He said, follow me. There's a simplicity. Man, when the Holy Spirit got a hold of my life, when God got a hold of my life in 1987, there was just such simplicity that I was just following Jesus. They asked me to do an invocation for the city council in Virginia Beach in 1991. We just started church at the Calvary Chapel, and we're non-denominational. Like, hey, we've never had a non-denominational minister come and do or, you know, like pray for the city council before we resolve all kinds of things. They say we've had all these people and they named all these denominations, but we never just had a Christian. That's how the world thinks. I'm like, <laughs> I wore my Bill Bong t-shirt that day too, of all things. Everyone's in suit and tie. I'm like, oh, I didn't get the memo. <laughs> all I could think was John Corson saying, you know, be yourself. And I was. But I always remember this like, you're a Christian. You're just a Christian. Like, that's your, it may feel good. 
should make you feel good. Follow Jesus. When Jesus called them, he called men to himself to follow him. And that's a loving relationship with the one who made all things, the one who holds all things together, and in him all things consist. That's the one who died for our sins. God's love the world that gave his son to die for our sins. By this we know love, that Christ died for us. We are yet enemies. We were his enemies, and he died for us. And so we love him because he first loved us. It's a loving relationship. But people want to make it a legal relationship. Do good, get good. Do bad, get bad. So I just remind us tonight, when we're here singing these songs, when we're having communion, <laughs> I mean, of course we have a sound statement of faith over God's nature, how we're saved, you know, and how we grow. But, I've met, you know, when you're, when you're ministering to kids with a brain tumor, they're following Jesus. We're not trying to make Calvinists out of them or Baptists or Calvary Chapelites. They're following Jesus. That's who we follow. When we're staring down the grave, we're not going to be thinking about Calvary distinctives or any other thing. We're going to be thinking about Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We're going to be thinking about Jesus, the good shepherd who laid down his life for us and is coming for us. That's who we're going to be thinking about. And I promise you this, and most of you know this, in your greatest victories, just remember it's Jesus who blessed you and you're following Jesus. And in your worst defeats, just remember it's Jesus who loves you and you're following Jesus. And you keep it simple. Man, I've been in such heavy situations in 35 years of ministry. I can't even imagine trying to explain some theological things to people who are dying. Most of humanity is like the thief on the cross. They're looking for mercy and forgiveness. And Jesus, from the childlike faith of a young child to an elderly person who's willing to admit that they lived their life wrong for 85 years, is always there looking unto Jesus. When I'm ministering to people and they're on their deathbed and Jesus is coming, I don't tell them, hey, let's go through this creed of doctrines one more time so you're ready for the trumpet to sound. I'm like, hey, Jesus is coming right here. It's going to open like Elijah's chariot. Right you're going to see it. You're right here. He's coming. And he's coming for you. And they're like, and I'm speaking truth. And I'm proclaiming truth. On the day of the Lord, it's Jesus. Loving relationship. WG, body of Christ. We follow Jesus. I'm a simple man. I told you I did to every man an answer for like two weeks with Brian Broderson. And I, ah, it's still, I'd see the questions like, oh, I don't even want to answer that. Who even calls and asks that question? He's like, he's like you know what Brian did? He's like, no, nah. he goes, I'll get that one. And he comes down and he's like, why don't you take this one, Joey? I'm like, I'm like I, 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 let's pray. I was like, Mike McIntosh, let's just pray about this right now. I, I quit doing every man an answer because I didn't have all the answers. I just have the answer you need. Follow Jesus. He'll reveal himself to you. He'll answer your questions. He'll comfort you in your worst moment. And he'll humble you if he has to in your best moment. He'll rejoice with you in the best moment if that's what it calls for. The second thing we see is, I will make you, and I quote this a lot. This is so critical for us to understand because I think most of us really genuinely, genuinely want to do good and be good. He says, I will make you. It's so relieving when you realize that you're not making you, but the Lord's making you. That it's Christ in us, the hope of glory. It's God who wills and works in you for his good pleasure. That if we just wake up and, and seek the Lord first, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, Matthew 6, coming up in a couple weeks. If we just make it our priority every day, 
to seek the Lord in the morning. Like David, in the morning I sought you and I think of you in the evening meditations. It's, it's not complicated. If we make time to read the word of God, if we make time to clear our mind and pray every morning and make that our priority, we're going to eat every day pretty much. There are certain things we're going to do every day pretty much. That's why Jesus said, a man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Because all those things that our body and our, that we, our flesh wants, the temporal, they're all going to pass away. But the word of God is eternal. See, Maslow's five drives, air, water, food, bowels, sex, those five drives, in case you haven't figured out when you get older, they start to go. They start to drop off. They're not as strong. And ultimately, when someone's dying, you know, what do we say? Three weeks without food, three days without water, and three minutes without air. When you're with someone dying, the last thing you want is like a little ice cube thing if it's terminal, right? Like the little, just they got the dry, like Jesus on the cross, I thirst. Those things are so powerful. Even, it's amazing how powerful they are, like all the way to the end in that sense of that, that, that human existence. But in the end, this mortal must put on immortality. This corruptible must put on incorruptibility, 1 Corinthians 15. And that's when all, all that, though the outward woman, the outward man is perishing, the inward woman, the inward man is being renewed daily. And we're being renewed daily by being in his word and we're being transformed from glory to glory by being in his word and spending time with the Lord. So we become like Moses. Remember when Moses said, God, show me your glory there on the mountain? And the Shekinah glory of the Lord went by and the glory was on his face. And he had to, veil, he had to wear the veil but see, all we like unveiled face see his glory. And let me just say this on behalf of the kingdom. There is nothing more beautiful than men and women who have been with Jesus in the morning. And the unveiled glory is in their eyes and on their face. Because Jesus said the eye is a lamp to the soul. And you know, you know when you're talking to a spirit-filled man or a spirit-filled woman, you can see that glory. And though we might be fading on the outward, we can just every day be renewed. Because not, it's not, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word. So you see, follow me and I will make you. And he makes us by time with him and by his word. That's why he said in John 15, if my word abides in you, you will ask what you will and it will be done for you. But apart from me, you can do some things, a few things. No, nothing. See, the Lord's, the cross is all or nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And then we read in Philippians, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's, it's all or nothing. The cross isn't like a, a tie. Being a disciple isn't about going to church. It's, it's about being all in with the Lord. We've, we're looking to Jesus in a loving relationship. It's not legal. It's loving and we realize the growth that we're wanting to have as a human being in this journey of life is brought about by the Lord, by spending time with the Lord, his word, and being transformed by the Lord. And this is what makes our faith in Christ so different than every philosophy and world religion. It was interesting. I was, you, some YouTube stuff, I'm always looking like little YouTube, like, 
like financial tips, like Dave Ramsey or something, like, oh, little Dave Ramsey, seven minutes with Dave Ramsey, you know, like, oh, how to save 10%, okay, I'll watch something like that, that kind of stuff. And I thought, oh, seven master keys of Stoic philosophy. I was like, oh, seven master keys? Well, I, I'm known to, like, you know, be teed up, you know, like, and Stoic means you have everything under control, like, hmm, I'm like, Let's see, let's see if maybe I can, maybe there's, so, let's see what this has to say. And it was, you know, it's the Greek philosophy of the Stoics, but two things that got my attention is one of the great deep secrets of Stoic philosophy to change your life is you need to exercise patience. <laughs> yeah, tell me about it. If you think I'm impatient now, you should have seen me 35 years ago before Jesus was working in my life. See, the Bible tells us to be patient. The difference is the Bible doesn't say, now go home and be patient. The Bible says, look to me and I'll transform you by my spirit and I'll teach you patience and you'll become more patient. Oh, one of the other master keys was when you're really mad at somebody, think everyone's going to die. I think that all the time. I'm not even a stoic. I see eternity every day. We're all, that's right. But the thing about the stoic philosophy that got my attention is it didn't offer any hope other than to calm you down, to think like, hey, I'm going to die, this won't matter. They're going to die, it won't matter. I'm like, yeah. But for the kingdom, it does matter. It does matter. Because I'm dying, I need to redeem my time in my life right now by becoming more like Christ. And they're dying, and I need to win them to Christ so they're not lost for all eternity. Because the Stoic just sees, hey, let's be more patient in time, and let's, let's, let's forgive people because we're all going to die. See, it's so two-dimensional. Jesus will make us to be what we need to be. Jesus is not a philosophy that says, do this and do that, and gives us no power to do it. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. He gives us all things pertaining to life and godliness. So he will make you who you need to be. And I get frustrated with me. Well, maybe you're like me. I get frustrated, and sometimes I'm really stoked. Like, I'm doing so good, and then I realize I'm not doing as good as I thought I was. Right? That's why I say life's like a baseball season. It's a, life's an endless season, like baseball, man. Just ebb and flow. 162 games. Just goes on forever. Life just, just, it's an ebb and flow. We're doing great. That's why I like in baseball, it says last 10 games, three and seven, eight and two. Like, like it's the ebb and flow. I feel like that in, in, in the human experience sometimes. But here's the simplicity that we can have with the Lord. If we purpose to grow in the Lord daily, you will be a different person at the end of each year. So I say my goal is to be a better version of Joey Baran on January 1st, 2024 than what you saw on January 1st, 2023. When we had dinner with my old friend Aaron Chang, the world-famous photographer, a couple weeks ago down in San Diego, there was a moment when I was gone from the table and his wife was gone from the table, and he said to Jennifer, he goes, Jennifer, I have to tell you, he is a completely different person. He goes, I can't believe, he's like, it, it is Joey Brand, but it's not the Joey Brand I knew when he was a California kid in my career. And you know what Jennifer said? She said, I would have never married that guy. Right? <laughs> she, he goes, oh, you wouldn't, so, oh, no, I, I don't even know that guy, and I wouldn't have married him. And that, that encouraged me, because it was a testimony to someone that I haven't hung out with in 30 years that remembers me a certain way. They can see 30 years of transformation in my life. Now my wife sees it day by day. It's kind of like when you watch your kids grow up, you don't notice it as much as when you went away for two years. Oh, the kids got big. But you want to be growing, yes? And it's the Lord. If we just draw, if the goal is to grow, is to, if the goal is to seek the Lord and obey the Lord, you will grow. That's a Bible. It's cause and effect. 
It's sowing and reaping. You will grow. But the beauty of following Jesus is it's, the etern- it's God's power in us. Every philosophy and world religion does not give that. And so that's our hope tonight, isn't it? It's such a s- simple playbook. Seek the Lord, read his word, spend time in prayer. When he corrects you, receive it. When you fall, learn from it. And forward, onward, and upward, always with the Lord. These are fishermen. These are everyday people, and they changed the world because they were called to discipleship. They responded to discipleship, and they did change the world. And that's our hope tonight, that we look to Jesus, loving relationship, and we let him do that work in us, that only the real work, we're not trying to, we're not, a pig's a pig, always a pig. And the dog always goes back to its vomit. But a woman or a man who has a new nature in Christ, we're going from glory to glory. So body of Christ, I'll remind us tonight, always looking unto Jesus, following Jesus. He'll never lead us astray. He's the good shepherd. And just let him do that work. And though it might be a long game view of the work in your life, Let it be growth. If you really want to grow in the Lord, you seek the Lord, when the year is done, there'll be a better version of you than the start of the year. And who you are as a person, if you're married, if you're a parent, an employee, citizen, you'll be a better citizen of planet Earth for all humanity if we keep it a loving relationship and let him work in us. It's very simple and that's why Jesus said, unless you have the faith of a child, you can by no means enter the kingdom. And it's not that it's complex. It's just sometimes we're prideful, carnal, and stubborn. So we just have to keep it tender and keep going forward. Yes and amen.